All righty. Thanks very much, Frank Holland. Uh, welcome to The Exchange. I am Dominic Chu, and here's what's ahead on the show. Ineffective oversight and risk management. That's how management describes internal controls at New York Community Bank Corp. That stock is sharply lower again today. We'll have the latest and talk to someone who has actually managed risk in the financial sector. Plus, Elon Musk back in the headlines, this time suing OpenAI and CEO Sam Altman. Our market guest welcomes, welcomes any potential pullback in Tesla stock on that noise. She's ready to buy more. And following Bitcoin's monster run this week, we have a special three buys and a bail edition for crypto. That's all ahead. Right now, though, markets are seemingly moving towards the highs of the session. It's pretty much green across the screen. You can see right there the Dow Industrial is up about two-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 up almost one-half of 1%. And a nearly 1% gain for the tech-heavier Nasdaq composite. We'll have more on, by the way, what's going on with two big movers here with Boeing and Spirit Aero Systems. Uh, According to Dow Jones, there could be potential deal talks brewing between the two of those. That's the reason why you're seeing Spirit Aero Systems shares up north of 13%. We'll have more on that later on in the show. Plus, our chart of the day. It's New York Community Bank Corp, ticker NYCB. And you can see there it's down about 25% again. This is the embattled New York-based regional lender that has, again, replaced its CEO at this point. And that's where we begin. Leslie Picker is here with the very latest on this saga. Uh, There are multiple headlines and multiple catalysts involving NYCB today. Multiple headlines, you're right, and now still losing about a quarter of its valuation. All of these, of course, just the latest salt in the wound of investors who have held on to New York Community Bank Corp shares this year. The stock plunging after a filing yesterday afternoon revealed that management found, quote, material weaknesses in the company's internal controls related to internal loan review. That review is not yet complete, meaning more problems could arise. NYCB attributes the weakness to, quote, as Dom mentioned, ineffective oversight, risk assessment, and monitoring activities. As a result, NYCB needs to delay its annual report and says it will formulate a remediation plan. Piper Sandler analysts downgrading that stock uh, because they say the slew of recent announcements gives them concern that there could be more issues coming down the pike for that company that, is, of course, is now the responsibility of a new management team. Sandro Danello, who had been appointed executive chairman just a few weeks ago, is assuming the CEO role, and Marshall Lux will become the new lead director. Oh, and a short while ago, NYCB announced it had filled the seats of chief risk officer and chief audit executive to critical roles, of course, that had reportedly been vacant for months. NYCB has lost more than two-thirds of its market value this year after earnings reported at the end of January showed sizable deterioration in the company's office and multifamily commercial real estate portfolio, Dom. So it's kind of this ongoing saga, but the real uh, importance here is to get that trust back from the investor community. And so you're seeing these headlines, but based on the stock reaction, uh, they haven't done too much to move the needle. I mean, since the great financial crisis, risk officers have to be part of the yes in in the equation there. Leslie, please stick around here. Let's bring in someone who has actually managed risk in the financial industry overall. He sees red flags emerging, especially around things like consumer credit risk. He also says that a new banking rule expected to take effect this year could help mitigate some of those risks. Joining us now is Brian Hughes, the former chief risk officer at Discover. Uh, Brian, this is something that, again, as I pointed out, since the days of the great financial crisis, banks have had to focus especially, especially laser on. 
What exactly in your mind happened with regard to oversight here? And what exactly do banks like NYCB do to restore that trust that Leslie mentioned? Well, uh, usually when you hear an announcement like this out of NYCB and the, you know, an internal review underway, I think you mentioned earlier in your broadcast, you almost always are going to hear more bad news coming out of it. So uh, unwise to sort of speculate at this time, maybe what might that bad news be? But when it does come to credit risk, whether you're dealing with uh, customers of NYCB or or the customers that I you know dealt with when I was the chief risk officer at Discover, um, usually more information is better. Uh, and that's the case with this new rule that's coming out from the CFPB uh, regarding open banking and that it will provide more information for lenders to be able to assess the credit risk of their consumers. What's interesting about this is it, by its own admission in these regulatory filings, as Leslie points out, it was some of the lack of internal controls and risk assessments around that lending practice within the bank that has kind of led to what could be further details to emerge about what's going to happen down the line at NYCB. What exactly will these transparency proposed transparency rules do to help those lenders make better decisions about lending? And by, by extension, how can lenders be a little bit more trustworthy with regard to sticking to some of those rules to make sure that these banks don't face this again in the future? Yeah. Yeah. So what these what these new open banking rules will do uh, is going to be great for banks and great for consumers, because what these rules will do is it will allow banks to safely allow consumers to safely and securely share information with banks that will make that, that will allow them to make more fair and more informed underwriting decisions. And the, the specific information that this rule is is going to uh, call on banks to share. And we, we expect the rule to be finalized sometime this year. And basically think about the, the information you as a consumer get on your checking account or on your credit card, all that information that's in those monthly statements, uh, in addition to the information that they might send you around the terms and conditions. And so this will be information that you'll be able to safely and securely share with other companies. And by doing so, I can see three benefits that will that will occur for consumers. One, it'll be easier to switch banks if you want to, because you'll be able to take your information with you. That'll make banks work harder to keep your business. Two, it'll be easier to get approved for a credit card or a loan because this information that's in your account, it has to do with your actual income and expenses. It's it's information that's not currently in the credit bureau reports which a lot of banks use to underwrite consumers. So it's what we call orthogonal information in the risk business, highly valuable new information. And then third, it's going to make it easier to manage your money because these open banking regulations will enable this data sharing and will enable, I think, a new wave of money management services to come out to help consumers manage their money. So it'll help consumers and also then it'll help lenders uh, by allowing them to make more informed decisions. You know, Leslie, it's interesting because the way that uh, Brian frames it, it almost sounds like the common app in colleges, yes. right? You, you have this kind of battery of information that's portable, that kind of just follows you around. It, it allows you to kind of have a more seamless transition between institutions. This is a different set of problems that NYCB is facing than just a year ago when it was a balance sheet issue across a number of different banks 
because of a, a, a rise in interest rates yep. that, that, that made collateral worth less, and all of a sudden things started to boil over. It was a contagion. This doesn't seem like this could be a contagion type effect unless it's symptomatic because of commercial real estate or other lending practices right or wrong. Yeah, well, think of it this way. Last year's issues stemmed from the historic rise in interest rates. So think of 2023 regional bank uh, turmoil, mini turmoil, as being purely related to interest rates. This year, it's more about credit quality. So you've got these uh, loan books. You have a lot of exposure to commercial real estate. They've now lived in a world where um, you know valuations are going down. Interest rates have remained high. Their ability to service that debt becomes much more stressed if you're a landlord or uh, you own uh, an office property. And therefore, investor attention and analyst attention has turned toward credit quality. And that's kind of the big unknown there. It has kind of less to do with this rising tide of interest rates, which could affect banks differently, but they're all kind of facing the same broader macro experience and more to do with idiosyncratic what kinds of loans were you making? And th did those ultimately turn out to be prudent decisions? I think that's the, the real question of 2024 so far. Okay. That's an interesting point with regard to the shifting risks out there. I would like to also pivot now, Brian, to something else from a risk perspective that could be uh, at least uh, affecting a larger part of the U.S. population. And that's the pending deal that we have on the books for Capital One Bank, which is a very big credit card lender, to go and buy smaller and fellow bank Discover, but also payments network provider Discover Financial. I wonder if you could take us through what exactly you see as the quote-unquote risks for not just the banks themselves, but for the system and consumers overall, if a deal like this were to go through. Yeah, so I think a, a deal like this goes through, I think you've got two very strong banks here, uh, Capital One and Discover, strong, innovative, uh, pro-consumer banks, um, I think, that are coming together. I think that, uh, you know, the bringing together these banks, I think that the resulting products, um, I think will still be, you know, very beneficial for consumers. They're both sort of mainstream consumer banks, credit cards, personal loans, auto loans, and the like. I see that, you know, those offerings, you know, still being strong and and better. I think the the big uh, the big thing that might happen here, and I think it was it was highlighted on the investor call uh, last week, is is what what could happen with the Discover Network, which you know today is sort of in fourth place of networks. You know, Visa, Mastercard being very big, American Express decent size. Discover sort of the fourth network, um, and I think you know the the scale that Capital One could potentially bring to that could make that network a a much more viable competitor uh, to to Visa, Mastercard, and I think that's the the value that the Capital One sees in the deal, and I think that could be the value uh, to uh, to consumers as well to have. Uh, another competitor in there, and of course, uh, the merchant community also, I think, is is sort of uh, desiring for another competitor in there. The sort of the battle over swipe fees and the like uh, continues. So, I think when it comes to the the consumer side, you know, two two strong ones coming together on a, on a payments network side. Uh, you know, kind of an interesting effect there with the ability to, to help build out the Discover Network. Ryan, what do you make of the, the timing that this deal was announced, given where we are in the macro environment, where we are with consumer delinquencies and the like? Um, I think that the the timing is is probably favorable. I think you know a, a year ago at this time we were we were looking forward and we we're saying oh you know here you know here comes the recession now all these rate hikes and and the economic cycle is going to turn. I think now. You know, we're starting to see a, a soft landing take shape, but you know, sort of too early to declare it. 
Um, but I think you know the signs are there of of a soft landing taking shape in terms of the you know the resilience of the job market. You know, consumer delinquencies uh, for credit, yes, they're up um, versus a year ago, but you know, over the longer run averages, you know, still in a in a pretty favorable place. And you know, consumer balance sheets are still you know better than they were pre-COVID. There's still a little bit of that COVID savings uh, in there and a, and a strong job market. So I think you know some of the dark clouds over the economic future uh, that were here maybe at this time last year dissipated a little bit. And certainly for consumer lending, uh, that that makes things a lot better. I mean, both both Capital One and Discover are a bit cyclical as they kind of go up and down. Uh, with the uh, with the economy. So I'd say a more favorable time for the outlook for both of them. All right. Brian Hughes, thank you very much for the insights, sir. Have a nice weekend. And of course, to our own Leslie Picker as well. We'll see you later on. Okay, now to our other top story today. It's Tesla CEO Elon Musk suing OpenAI and its CEO, Sam Altman, for breach of contract. Musk, who helped found the ChatGPT maker, said they broke an agreement to develop AI for the benefit of humanity by focusing now on profits. So will this lawsuit be another distraction for Tesla and its CEO? Our next guest recently increased her position in Tesla and says there may be an initial knee-jerk reaction to the news, but she would add more Tesla stock on any bit of weakness. Joining me now with that view is Nancy Tengler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tengler Investments. Uh, thank you very much here, Nancy, for joining us with this. Uh, let's talk first about what's happening now with Tesla's CEO, Elon Musk, already a billionaire, I don't even know how many times over at this point. Is this just another distraction with OpenAI and this lawsuit? I think it is, Dom, and I think the market will quickly turn to other issues. I mean, I thought the more important news was the um, announcement that they are reducing or adding incentives in China uh, and to lower prices and in increased demand. But, you know, his distractions uh, would probably put most of us uh, you know, under under the table, but he just moves on. And I was at the mega factory um, thanks to the folks at RBC uh, this week, and there is a lot of promising stuff going on at that company. What exactly is the promising stuff? And we already know that you're bullish and we know that you're long the stock and you have a vested interest in this stock going higher. But what makes you that much more bullish? What did you see that made you feel like this is something that you want to keep on accumulating? Well, so the mega factory makes um, battery storage, basically utility grade battery storage. So these big walls of batteries that will really change the way that uh, electric utilities operate and should reduce outages as well as all the forest fires that we've been uh, seeing over the years. In the Master Plan 3 presentation that Tesla made a year ago, they estimated that battery storage could account for 35% of total fossil fuel reduction. That's versus 21% for the car. Add to that, they only have a 15% market share, but they have a cost advantage of about 30% due to their vertical integration efforts and cost reductions, obviously. And so this is now the fastest growing, most profitable business at, at Tesla, and some estimate will be worth one and a half times the car business in the not too distant future. What exactly, oh, oh, that's a huge thesis for the bull side of things. One of the reasons for the downside as of late over the shorter to medium term for Tesla has been the concerns about China. Hyper competitive mm -hmm. market out there right now. We have a lot of maybe even price wars, you want to call them, going on over there right now. And a slowing EV demand picture here in America. How does all that counter out? And maybe the price does reflect 
why those issues have become more front and center? Yeah, no, it's a real concern. I mean, we initiated our position during the last distraction, which was the X acquisition. Uh, we we bought it last January at about 100 and 105 bucks a share. And, and that was a, a short-lived distraction. And so I think what you have to pay attention to with this company is where is the technology going and where are they going to see the growth? And if they can grow this business half as fast as they think they can, it, it will solve so many problems with renewables uh, and usage of renewables at, you know, on a 24 hour uh, per day schedule. And so I, and they are already monetizing it to a great degree. It's a nascent industry. So I really think that's where investors are missing uh, some of the focus and what the head, they're reacting to the headlines on the slowing EV demand uh, around the globe. And I get it. I mean, I just leased a, a car in the UK and it was a nightmare trying to find the, the charging stations stations, sorry, um, are, you know, not being familiar with the territory. So sure. they're not for everyone. But I think we learned people want to buy Teslas more than they want to buy EVs. All right. And, and Nancy, uh, before we let you go, you manage all kinds of other investments besides just Tesla. Can you take us through, we just had a huge segment there about what's, what's facing NYCB in the regional banking sector right now. Can you take us through whether or not you think regional banks are still attractive right now or, or are you reducing? We are reducing. I think there's just better places to be. I don't think there, you know, there's necessarily going to be a big crisis um, throughout the whole sector or industry. But, but I think there's better places to invest, particularly in financials. I mean, we we added a position in Brookfield Asset Management uh, last year, and we've been adding to it. Private credit seems to have a lot more flexibility. We uh, increased our exposure to American Express. I, I don't, I don't think you have to own the regionals to participate in the financial sector. All right. Nancy Tangler with a view on Tesla and the banks. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. Thanks, Dom. All right. Well, coming up on the show, if you're another, if you're a driver with a need for speed, you may want to <laughs> resent one of their products here. We'll talk to, C to the CEO of a transportation safety tech company that missed on the bottom line but gave stronger than expected guidance. It's all about mobility and the need some people have for speed. Shares are up about 5%. We'll reveal that stock coming up. Plus, Bitcoin blowing past $60,000, inching closer to a new all-time high. But if you missed the boat on Bitcoin, can you still get in on that trade? We've got a special crypto edition of three buys and a bail coming up. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Smart transportation company, Vera Mobility, was the mystery chart that we showed you just before the commercial break. Shares are up 5% following a beat on revenues and better than expected full year guidance. Slight though miss for the quarter on the bottom line. The company makes the hardware and software for things like traffic and speed cameras, the strobe lights and stop signs, and a whole lot more as well. Joining us now for more in an exclusive interview is David Roberts, the Vera Mobility President and CEO. David, thank you very much for being here. I know that there are a lot of drivers out there who may bemoan some of your products, but they're out there for a reason, and uh, municipalities across the country have adopted them. Can you take us through what exactly smart mobility is and why that you're so, so optimistic about the coming months and quarters? Yeah, of course. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, yes, smart mobility really refers to a category of technology solutions that make transportation safer and easier for customers. And customers can be municipalities, they can be commercial fleets, and even universities and municipalities around parking solutions. 
Um, but what you're seeing is a convergent, the technology is really starting to enable better decisions, uh, better capabilities that have measurable impact and make things safer inside of cities. As an example, you referenced some of our cameras earlier. Um, you know, we see 30% reductions in accidents and speed overall per intersection where those cameras exist. And that's better for reducing fatalities and accidents. Now, it's also, when we talk about mobility solutions in the context of our current time, people automatically drift towards things like auto, artificial intelligence, uh, autonomous driving, that sort of thing. Is there something that you guys are doing that is enabling your company to participate in that autonomous driving slash AI type boom that we're seeing elsewhere in the market? Yeah, as you think about autonomous driving, uh, as we've been public now for five years, we get a lot of questions about that. And we are certainly watching that technology, but as we've said all along, and we still believe the the sort of proliferation of autonomous driving into the US markets is a long, long, long way away. And so in the meantime, you have over 220 million vehicles that are still going on that aren't autonomous and have the propensity to have accidents and fatalities. And our goal is to help work with cities to help prevent that. As you relate to AI, we actually use AI inside of our camera technology that allows us to have smarter uh, conceptualization of what's happening at the roadside that gives uh, more data and insights to our customers. How exactly do mobility solutions like yours play into, you mentioned these fleet automobiles before, some of your biggest customers out there are fleet operations, they could be rental car providers, that sort of thing. What exactly is your business outside of just say the self-pay parking meters and the speed yeah. cameras that have caught people with their license plates over the course of the last several years? Yeah, we also work in, uh, we work with rental car companies and, and fleet management companies around tolling. So, uh, you know, if you live in a certain area and you have your own tolling uh, account, that that's one thing, but when you rent a car, that has to have access to a toll road so that you can get the convenience of using that. And so we have technology integrations around the country and even in Europe as well that allow our customers customer to use those toll roads to make their trip a little bit easier. What does the future look like for a company that already deals in futuristic stuff right now? You meant, we talked about AI, we talked about some of the autonomous driving stuff, but how exactly does your company then sell that thesis to investors? What is the big picture that you're trying to tell investors uh, Vera will be about in say the next five years? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, our core business, we talked about this at Investor Day a couple of years ago, is really, really strong. The markets we're in, whether that's in uh, in the automated enforcement or whether that's in tolling or whether that's in parking, all have some secular tailwinds that are pushing those core businesses along. So we're super excited about the businesses we're in. In addition, there are other things that are going to be coming along that we believe we can be a part of around connected vehicle technology, which is anything from how do fleets manage and deploy their vehicles and how do they make sure that their drivers are behaving safely to everything from how does the car become a, a payment mechanism for a consumer? All those are really exciting areas that we continue to look at uh, and we think will be a part of that future. But our core business is set up for success for many years to come. All right. Market cap right now, just shy of $3.8 billion. David Roberts at Vera, thank you very much, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, well, coming up on the show, Boeing postponed its guidance following that Boeing 737 MAX 9 door plug blowout back in January. Here's what CEO David Calhoun told Phil Lebeau back then. I want everybody, everybody on every airplane to know that Boeing owns it. We own our supply chain, 
We own spirit. We own the results of our work. We understand that. We really do. All right. Well, those words are taking on a whole new meaning today as shares of Spirit Aerosystems, as you can see there, pop on the news that Boeing is in talks to possibly buy it. We've got the details coming up next. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Spirit Aerosystems are moving higher on reports that Boeing is in potential talks to buy the troubled fuselage maker after spinning the company off nearly two decades ago. Spirit shares are back in positive territory for the year, while Boeing is still down more than 20 percent. Let's now bring in CNBC.com's airlines reporter Leslie Josephs, who has confirmed this story with one of her sources as well. Uh, what's old is new again. I, I don't know. This is a company that's trying to recombine now. Uh, there's probably a reason why. Can you take us through what this is, what the thinking is, and why this deal is coming together now? So Boeing, and we've talked about this over the years, it just seems to be like one production problem after another. Manufacturing flaws, everything from misdrilled holes to fuselage skins not being lined up right. And the maker of the fuselage, probably the, the most key supplier Boeing can have when you're making an airplane, is Spirit Aerosystems. Boeing spun it off almost 20 years ago, and now it's trying to get a handle on these problems, which kind of culminated in this January 5th accident on Alaska Airlines. We've all seen the video of kind of that gaping hole in the 26th row of the plane. A door plug blew out. Um, what they're trying to do is get a, get a handle on their production problems and maybe taking Spirit in-house is, is their way to do that. So, I mean, it was like I mean, a general contract. Contractor uses <clears throat> other contractors, but they're responsible for it. In this case here, there is, is there a benefit to having this? Wouldn't weren't they responsible? I guess in my mind, for the quality control issues of another company to begin with. <clears throat> what does this do by bringing it back in house? at this particular junction? That's a really good question. So they were responsible. So the fuselages would be shipped up to Renton, Washington, where Boeing assembles the 737 MAX um, and other um, variants of that plane and ones that are yet to be certified. And having more eyes and ears and having everything in-house, uh, Boeing's thinking uh, does seem to be that instead of outsourcing everything to a whole bunch of suppliers, I mean, there are thousands of parts on an aircraft, um, that having this key supplier in-house might help their quality issues and have a better uh, monitoring system and, and just better control, really, over its supply chain. So this a is reversal a, of what well, they did this 20 is years ago. interesting because this, this is a different set of circumstances by which a merger is being contemplated, hypothetically, if this does kind of formally get announced. Uh, the Justice Department, the uh, regulators, have not had a great uh, amount of optimism about deals getting done. It's been, not just been horizontal, like Boeing, possibly with Airbus, something hypothetically like that, but it's also been supply chains. Vertical integration has come under a lot of scrutiny. Do you think this is one where regulators maybe say because of the circumstances, we should just let this deal go through? Yeah, this is if a, it were to happen. Yeah, I mean, we don't know, and we, we should state that you know a deal might not come to fruition, of course. Um, but it, it, it's it's not really clear yet. This is a tricky one, so it's not like you know JetBlue and Spirit Airlines that was challenged, and, and ultimately the DOJ won their their lawsuit. The two airlines are appealing, um, and they're trying to you know gain scale within a very concentrated U.S. Um, airline market. Uh, you know, aviation also has undergone a ton of consolidation 
consolidation. RTX, of course, has just gotten bigger and bigger over the years. Um, but this is, you know, a smaller company, one that's key to Boeing. It, it you know, was part of its supply chain before. Um, and it's not like Boeing can, has a whole bunch of fuselage suppliers that it can go to anyway. You know, there's a very high barrier to entry in aerospace uh, to begin with, you know, safety checks and, and just the capital that you need to for this industry. So it, it, we will have to see. Um, it, it's not clear, but it is a little bit different than some of the other mergers that we've seen. All right. Leslie Josephs, thank you for being here. My we'll pleasure. All right. Well, uh, for the full story, by the way, you can go over to CNBC.com. Leslie's story is up there right now. All the context you need for that Boeing spirit possibility of a deal. Now let's send it over to Pippa Stevens, who's got a CNBC News update this hour. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Dom. The New York man who shot a young woman in his driveway will spend at least 25 years in prison. The 66-year-old man was convicted in January for the murder of a young woman who accidentally turned into his driveway while searching for a party. In addition to the murder charge, the man also received a sentence for tampering with evidence. The CDC is dropping guidance that COVID-positive patients should isolate for five days, ending the strategy in place since the pandemic that health experts said was an important part of controlling the spread. The agency issuing new guidelines today aimed at treating COVID more like other respiratory infections. And first responders made a daring rescue today, saving the driver of a semi-truck that was dangling off the Clark Memorial Bridge in Louisville, Kentucky. The bridge is still closed to traffic after the semi appeared to have been going north before it crossed over to the southbound lane, crashing through a guardrail. Wow, Dom, that is a quite the video. Dramatic images for sure there. Pippa Stevens, thank you very much for the news update. Uh, coming up on the show, Bitcoin's monster rally has the crypto closing in on a record high, hovering at more than two-year highs right now. Up next, we'll look at the three buys and one bail in the crypto space. And as we head out to break, check out Dell having its best day ever, hitting an all-time high after the company posted an earnings beat, citing rising demand for its artificial intelligence servers. It's also hiking its dividend by 20%. Shares are up, by the way, 200% over the course of the past year. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a huge week for crypto and its ecosystems. Thanks a lot to the Bitcoin ETF boom. Joining me now for a crypto edition of Three Buys and a Bail is Danielle Shea, VP of Options over at Simpler Trading. Uh, Danielle, thank you for being with us here. Let's go first up to the biggest name in this space, and that's just Bitcoin itself. It's already up more than 21% this week. It's within striking distance of its record high. February was also its best month since 2020. But J.P. Morgan predicts a correction ahead after the hype surrounding its next halving event expected around April starts to cool down a bit. Is Bitcoin a buy? Yes, it is a buy for me right here because you know why? When you get so close to that previous all-time high, it just really acts as a magnet. And so for me, I'm looking at this 69,000 price point as a critical target. Now, once we get up to that zone, yes, we could see a pullback. That's typical. But here's the thing. If we see momentum and we break through that high, my next target overhead is going to be 80,000. So I still think there's more room to run. Obviously, it would have been better to buy it a little bit lower, but I think this is a great trade right here. Okay, so that's the Bitcoin underlying. Let's move up to some of the other ways you play it. The ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, which is ticker BITO, BITO, which invests in Bitcoin futures, not Bitcoin directly per se. The fund has seen more than 133 million in net inflows so far this year, bringing its total assets to just roughly $2 billion, according to data from FactSet. Uh, Danielle, do you like BITO and why? 
So I like this one because I think it's a great way to trade it through an ETF. It's pretty low price, so it has a low barrier to entry. And then I also like it because traders can trade it in the options market. So, you know, right now it is right up against resistance around $30 a share. But as I mentioned, we have that momentum in Bitcoin. And if we can break out above that overhead resistance, then I think it'll be a great momentum trade. Because this is such a low price ticker to get into, especially with the low priced options, traders can come in and buy out of the money calls three, six months down the line for a relatively good price in case of a continued breakout. And of course, to find their risk in the process as well with those options. All right, Danielle, the last buy here is Coinbase. Those shares are up nearly 60% in the last month. But Mizuho's Dan Dolev, who's a friend of this show, says it's gotten too expensive and sees 40% downside ahead. Danielle, you're sticking with Coinbase though. So the reason why I like Coinbase, Coinbase here is because, you know, obviously it moves with Bitcoin and being bullish Bitcoin, I think that it makes sense. But more than that, you can see that it's broken up above the key support zone at $200 a share. So I think if it stays up above 200, uh, we've been able to breach a lot of resistance. I have an upside target of about 250. Um, and if you look at earnings, it's been doing relatively well over the course of the last four quarters, or at least better than expected. So I like this continued momentum as long as it stays up above 200. All right. So those are our three buys. Let's move on to the bail, which is Bitcoin miner Riot Platform. So shares are down 9% so far this year. Roth MKM expects a margin boost from that upcoming halving event. But Danielle, you're not betting on this stock over the longer term. No, you know what? I'm not. And I'll tell you why. Because first of all, I don't ever like betting on anything to the long side that has relative weakness. And as you noted, you know, it's down on the year and there's a ton of overhead resistance in this name. So what that means is you've had a ton of buyers at much higher prices. And so when the stock does trade higher, you have a lot of people that need to get out. And so while it can be good for some shorter term trades and, you know, traders are always asking me about this name, um, I would not want to bet on this one in the long run to the upside. And especially if it breaks below $12 a share, that's the point where I'd really say that it's a great short. Okay. Danielle Shea, three buys and a bail crypto edition. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. All right, so that's the bear case on Riot. Stick around for Power Lunch next hour because we're going to hear from the CEO of Riot Platforms, Jason Less, uh, an interview you don't want to miss given all the volatility in crypto. We'll be right back after this. But first, still ahead on the exchange, markets tempering rate cut expectations big time since last November's meeting. Apollo's Torsten Slock not expecting any this year now, any. Former Fed Governor Jeremy Stein tells us what he sees coming down the pike. That is coming up after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Fed's March meeting less than three weeks away. And while a cut is now basically off the table, there's still plenty of debate about when Powell will cut rates, if at all, this year. Our own Steve Leisman has spoken to a handful of Fed presidents at the U.S. Monetary Policy Forum in New York today and joins us now alongside former Fed Governor Jeremy Stein. I'll send it over to you, Steve. Hey, Dom, yesterday I promised you what I thought was going to be one of the most interesting discussions of the day, and I think we have it. Fed Governor Jeremy, so former Fed Governor. Very Jeremy former. Stein. Yeah. Very former. Um, give me your thoughts right off the bat on whether or not you think the Fed mm -hmm. can bring inflation back down to 2.0%. 
Yeah, I think that may be challenging. So obviously, I, I should preface it by saying we're in a pretty amazing place. I mean, if you think back to where we were a year ago, it's unfathomable that we'd be where we are. Um, you know, in my, terms of inflation being inflation as low being this low, and the labor market still being basically great. Nobody here was predicting that last year. Exactly. So that you know, the the the, the context for this has to be whether by luck or by skill, they've done an amazing job. Okay. You know? Now, my best guess is inflation right now underlying is tracking high twos, 2.8. We saw the core PCE was 2.8. I don't know that it is going to want to voluntarily fall much further of its own accord. You know, it's come back a lot in part because of the supply chain stuff reversing itself. You know, the models that they use have a bit of a, a magic effect where if you say two, it just drops to two. I don't really buy that so, so you much. So the Fed should sort of what? Sort of cut its losses now and reverse policy? Or no, I, what would be I, I, I the think, best I think best it, it depends here. a little on the context. Right now we've got a strong, the, the, the labor market is strong, output growth is strong. I'd be inclined to just be a little bit patient and wait a couple of meetings. If you start to, and so in that sense, they can be pursuing the goal of getting inflation down a little bit further. I'm not against them doing that. Right. It's if the, the trade-off starts to bite, in other words, you see the economy weakening, then obviously you're gonna, you know, now they're, they're at the point where they have to be balancing both legs of the mandate. There is a big debate going on, which you just addressed in the luncheon here, mm -hmm. about what the neutral rate is. And right. people don't need to get too excited about the neutral rate, it just means What's normal, right? Where would the Fed put the interest rate right now if it was not trying to accelerate or decelerate the economy? Right. The Fed seems to say that long run rate is two and a half percent. Does that seem right to you? That seems low. So we're talking about two and low. a half. That's if it's two and a half percent nominal. Right. That seems low. I think actually where the market is right now. So if you look at like the two-year T-bill, right. which is a reasonable proxy for sort of the path of, the, sure. uh, of monetary policy, that's in the fours. That strikes me as pretty reasonable. Um, I think we're in a different economy than we were in the years what leading up to the What makes it period. different, Jeremy? I think so some of it, you know, you can point to some fundamental factors, debt to, you know, government spending, all that puts pressure on savings. Right. Um, and I think some of it is just the path that we've taken. So we took a path through high inflation, and I think that has more inertia sometimes than we give it credit for. So. You know, inflation was stubbornly kind of in the ones, 1.7. Right. And I think that has some self-fulfilling history dependence to it. We've been through a period now where it's been high. People's expectations for it going forward may be a little bit higher. And that tends to make it settle in at a higher level. So what you're long. saying to investors out there, which mm -hmm. is we're not clicking our heels and going back to Kansas of 2% so. or sub 2% inflation. I'd argue with you the following way, with, without mm -hmm. conviction, yeah. which is, um, what about all those forces, the global forces, the things, the excess savings mm -hmm. glut, the things that caused us to believe we'd be in a sub-2% inflation world? Have those gone away in the pandemic? Many of them remain. Uh -huh. I think we may have overfit the stories. In other words, we definitely had low rates. Right. Was it really because of the savings glut? Was it really because of something else? Those were stories that worked really well after the fact. I'm a little <laughs> less sure that that was the reason. And some of it, I think, especially in the 10 years leading up to the pandemic, was we had low rates because we had low rates. I think there is an extent to which the economy gets a little bit addicted to low rates. And so, you know, if the Fed keeps rates low for a long time, they bring forward a lot of consumption. Right. Everybody buys a new car and a new refrigerator. And then you have to kind of keep rates low to keep things going. So. 
our star was definitely low, right. but I'm not so sure that a simple, it's this demographic thing or that demographic thing is the Jeremy, last question, we're, we're kind of out of time here, but should the Fed be so quick next time, and hopefully there is never a next time, but there always will yeah. be, to go to zero and do QE again, or do those things look like, at the end of the day, they were more trouble than they're worth because of how difficult it is to exit? I think they will have to go, you know, if the economy is really suffering, it's their job. And right. if you they sit in the chair, right. they have to certainly go low with rates. I think the last round of QE, in retrospect, doesn't look very good. I think more was done relative to sort of the efficacy of it. And, you know, because rates went up, they end up losing a lot of money on that. And that's a real cost to taxpayers. So I think they'll have to be more prudent. I, would I rule out doing it at all under snow? But less likely, you think? I would be a little around. more ginger, I think. Okay. So. Yeah. Jeremy Stein, thank you so much for joining us. Dom, back to you. Higher for longer, I think, is what Jeremy's saying. I, I think that I've heard that before, Steve Leisman. Thank you very much to you and to Jeremy <laughs> Stein as well. Coming up on the show, shares of Beyond Meat are lower today, but up about 25% this week after a revenue beat and guidance that it will, quote, steeply reduce expenses this year. But could an increasingly cost-conscious consumer derail some of those plans? That story is coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Pricing power has been key for both staples and discretionary names on the consumer side. And while some input costs have come down, there are still plenty of potential margin pressures out there, particularly for the restaurant business. Kate Rogers joins us now with more on that story. Hi, Kate. Hey there, Dom. I'll start with McDonald's. As the company's CEO noted that consumers making less than $45,000 annually were visiting less, and he said he'd likely see them continue to evolve value offerings to maintain perceptions around value at the brand. Now, some of McDonald's franchisees are pushing to add cheaper items like snack wraps back on the menu instead of discounting core menu items moving ahead. Wendy's a huge talker. Another great example here. The company had to issue a statement this week that walked back comments made earlier in the quarter about digital menu boards and dynamic pricing, which was widely interpreted as, quote, surge pricing. It said in a statement this week, we said these menu boards would give us more flexibility to change the display of featured items. This was misconstrued in some media reports as an intent to raise prices when demand is highest at our restaurants. We have no plans to do that and would not raise prices when our customers are visiting us the most. And finally, Beyond Meat this week was soaring as its CEO unveiled a plan to restore margins for the company. The stock moved nearly 100% at one point. It'll get there with a tiered pricing structure as part of the formula and its new healthier burger in retail stores, aka groceries, going to be a more premium priced offering. And he was kind of saying that even if customers are turned off by higher prices, the higher prices will likely make up for that loss, which is fascinating. All right, let's talk about prices and pricing. Wages are going to go up in California next month. How is that going to impact fast food prices, especially there? Yeah, $20 an hour specifically for the fast food sector. Huge. It's going to be the highest in the nation. Every company essentially is watching this. Chipotle is one name. Uh, I think it has about 15% of its restaurants here in California. And it was kind of noting that pricing, again, could go up as a result of that. Uh, you've heard the McDonald's franchisees talking about that. And one thing I think is really fascinating is that some restaurants, I, I would have to imagine, will look for more ways to automate uh, the process with their workforce. And Chipotle is a great example of um, one company that's been really 
really investing in this and testing out some smart technology. We've shown on TV the Autocado and its chippy machine uh, for making its tortilla chips and prepping avocados. It's one way to streamline operations, right? And uh, could potentially make things easier for the workers that you do have on the line, Don. All right, Kate Rogers, thank you very much for that. That, that does it for The Exchange. Leslie Picker's getting ready right now. Power Lunch will be back after this side of the break. 